The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Be seated, please. Good morning. It's good to be together this morning, isn't it? Spend time in worship to our God. He is truly worthy. It's not always easy to be in worship. We experience that as a congregation many different times. I think we're experiencing that today, but it's always worth it. It's always the right thing to do, to assemble with our brothers and sisters on the first day of the week, to spend time in worship to a God who loves us more than we can even imagine. What a blessing that is. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, where we read just a few moments ago, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, if you'd like to join me there in your copy of God's Word. We're going to begin a new series of lessons this morning, Matthew chapter 5, and this morning we're going to focus all of our attention on verse number 3. Do we have any Elvis Presley fans in here this morning? I willing to admit it? Yeah, see a few hands. Elvis Presley, as I'm sure you're very well aware, accomplished a number of amazing things in his career, not only as a musician, but also as an actor. Let me share with you some of those things. The first thing that came up whenever I was looking at Elvis's accomplishments was that he starred in 31 different movies. I don't know about you, but when I think about Elvis, I think about his musical career. I think about him as a musician, but he also appeared and starred in 31 movies that did very well in the box office. He had 149 songs that were on the Billboard's Top 100 list. Out of those 149 songs, 18 of them went to the number one spot and remained there for a combined total of 80 weeks. He was nominated for 14 Grammys and ended up winning three of them. His American sales earned him gold, platinum, or get this, multi-platinum awards for 150 different albums and singles. From 1969 to 1977, the king of rock and roll averaged 140 shows a year, with the majority of them being completely sold out. His fans loved him then, and his fans still love him now. I think that's demonstrated by the fact that about 500,000 people visit his mansion in Memphis, Tennessee, called Graceland, every single year. Of course, all of those great accomplishments brought him great fame, great fortune, great success. Everybody knew his name, and there were a lot of people that wanted to be just like him. Elvis truly did some amazing things. For about 38 years, he had a doctor, a personal doctor named Dr. Kirk. In 2015, Dr. Kirk wrote a book entitled Taking Care of Elvis, and in that book she talked about her interactions with Elvis. She talked about her relationship with Elvis. As she wrote that book, she said a number of things that might surprise somebody looking from the outside in. For instance, in one part of the book she wrote, the world thought that he had everything, and yet the happiness wasn't there I wish there was something I could have done to make him a happier person. Hold on for just a second. Wouldn't you say that Elvis 
had pretty much everything. He had fame. He had fortune. He had success in abundance. Everybody knew his name. Everybody wanted to be like him. Everyone loved listening to his music. We're tempted to look at a life like his and and think something like, if I had that, if I was him, then I would be set. My life would be perfect. You wouldn't find me complaining about anything. In fact, I'd be the happiest person in the world. I would walk around with a smile on my face all the time because I could have everything that I need, but not just everything that I need, everything that I want. I could have everything in the world. According to his doctor, Elvis had everything in the world except for happiness. What do we learn from that? What does that teach us? I think it teaches us this overarching principle that we're going to be confronted with in our study in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12 over the next few weeks. It's a principle that we need to understand as Christians true happiness does not come from this world. True happiness is not found in this world. If we're going to experience true happiness and true meaning and true blessing in life, we're not going to find it in how much money exists in our bank accounts. We're not going to find it in the jobs that we have or the responsibilities that we have. We're not going to find it in our relationships. We're not going to find it in the people who live underneath our roofs. We're not going to find it in the world. True happiness, true meaning, true blessing does not exist in the world. Well, if that's the case, where can we find it? If it doesn't exist in the world, if it's not in my job, if it's not in my possessions, if it's not in my relationships, where can we find true happiness and meaning and blessing in this life? How can we experience true happiness? That's going to be the question that we're going to be answering over the next eight weeks from Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. If we step back from that text for just a minute, we know that it's, it's set within a particular context. When you read from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1 all the way to the end of Matthew chapter 7, verse number 28, you find what many people call the Sermon on the Mount. I believe, and I think we should all believe, that this is one of the greatest sermons to ever be preached. It's a sermon that was preached by our Lord Jesus. The longest sermon that we have from our Lord Jesus. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because if you have your Bible open, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. If you look at the background of these slides, that is the believed place where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Can you picture that? Jesus goes up on top of the mountain and and He's overlooking the Sea of Galilee. The land sloped down to the sea. Jesus was, of course, on top of the mountain. The crowd would have went down the mountain as it sloped. They would have been able to hear Him naturally. It created a natural sound barrier where His voice would have been able to be heard. He went up on top of this mountain, verse 1. He sat down, like every other rabbi would do, and His disciples came to Him. And as His disciples came to Him in verse 2, He opened His mouth and taught them. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking not to the world. He's speaking to His disciples about how He wants them to live, who He wants them to be, the character that He wants them to develop. And that's what He does through Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. 
Jesus goes on top of the mountain in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. And if you flip a few pages, He doesn't come down from the mountain until Matthew chapter 8 and verse 1. Jesus begins this amazing sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, with a series of eight statements that we oftentimes call the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes all begin in the same way. Blessed are thee, blessed are thee, blessed are thee. These are eight different statements where Jesus teaches us where we can find true happiness in life. These eight statements teach us how we can find true meaning and blessing in this life. Where does true happiness come from? How can we experience true blessing in life? As we read through the Beatitudes, Jesus tells us that we don't find it in the world. In fact, if people in the world were to look at this list, these eight statements in Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, they would stand scratching their heads. They would be confused. They would read through this text and find things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the men. From a purely physical perspective, that doesn't make any sense. If you're looking at that through the eyes of the world, that doesn't add up. How can someone who is poor in spirit or someone who mourns or someone who's... How can they be the ones who experience true blessing in life? Jesus presents to us true happiness doesn't come from the world, what we have, what happens to us in our lives. You know what He's going to say in Matthew 5? True blessing, true happiness comes from the character that we choose to develop. And in this text, Jesus helps us to develop a character that is pleasing to Him. As we read just a few moments ago, the first thing that Jesus mentions in this series of statements that we're going to be looking at over the next eight weeks, He begins by talking about those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If we want to experience true blessing and meaning and happiness in life, we have to be people who are poor in spirit. But then we run into another question, what in the world does that mean? What does being poor in spirit mean? What does a life look like that is defined by a spiritual poverty? As we answer that question, let's begin by looking at that phrase, poor in spirit. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. That Greek word for poor refers to the people in other places in the New Testament who are physically poor. People who are in physical poverty. That word is used to refer to people who don't have a place to live. They don't have food to eat. They don't have clothes to wear. They don't have money to spend. The picture of this Greek word is a beggar on the side of the street. Someone who is in absolute poverty. But notice Jesus is not talking about those who are poor financially. He's talking about those who are poor spiritually. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He doesn't say blessed are those who are poor in finances or blessed are those who are poor in finances. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. This is not a physical poverty, this is a spiritual poverty that Jesus is talking about. Well, okay, I I can get that. I can understand that. Being poor in spirit is a spiritual poverty, and when you live in this spiritual poverty, you're blessed. But still, the question surfaces, doesn't it? What exactly does that mean? Let's put our finger on the pulse of it. What does it mean to be poor in spirit, to live in this spiritual poverty that Jesus is talking about? Let's suggest a few ideas. Number one, being poor in spirit 
means that we understand who we are. We understand what we amount to without God. David talks about that in Psalms chapter 16 and verse number 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Can you see in that David's understanding of God? He correctly identifies God as the Lord, and truly God is the Lord. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He is the Creator of the universe. He is the God who is exalted above all things. He is the God who is exalted above all people and all gods with a little g. But David not only identifies Him as the Lord in verse 2, he says to Him, You are my Lord. That's relationship. As David claims a very personal relationship with God, you are my Lord, he makes a confession. I have no good apart from you. David recognizes every good thing in his life has come to him from God's hand. So if you subtract God from David's life, what do you have left? Absolutely nothing. I have no good apart from you. If David loses God, according to Psalm 16 and verse 2, he loses everything. What is David without God? Nothing. Think about it like this. What is salt without pepper? What is peanut butter without jelly? What is a bride without a groom? Or a groom without a bride? You can't have a wedding without both of those, can you? Who is Batman without Robin? Or maybe the better question is, who is Robin without Batman? I think Batman could exist without Robin. I'm not sure that is true the other way around. Who is Mickey Mouse without Minnie Mouse? Who is Tom without Jerry? You go through those series of questions and the answer is nothing. Nobody. When you think about one, what? You automatically think about the other. You cannot have one. One is not going to be profitable without the other. And so the question is, what is your life without God? If you were to subtract God from your daily life, what would you have left? Oh, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have a lot of good things without you. I mean, look at all these things that I have that aren't even connected to spirituality. All these things that I have that aren't even connected to my relationship with God, I think I can make it. No, I, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have some good things apart from you. If I were to lose God, then I would lose a lot. I would lose the majority of what I have in my life, but I have enough left over, I think I could make it. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you, period. Those who are poor in spirit are going to understand who they are without God. If we were to subtract God from our lives and we're living in a way that's poor in spirit, we are nothing. We become nothing. We have nothing. Without God, we're spiritually bankrupt. Without God, we have nothing left. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. We're going to understand who we are without God. Number two, being poor in spirit means that we're going to maintain a proper perspective on our relationships with God. 
I think that Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, clarifies that so well. As we read through this text, I want you to ask yourself two questions. Question number one, who is God? Question number two, who are you? Who am I? How is God described in this text? How is He held up? And then how are we described in this text? Let's ask ourselves those two questions as we begin in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the whole house was filled with smoke. And I said, here's Isaiah's response, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now go back to our first question, who is God in this text? How is God described in this text? Well, it just jumps off the page, doesn't it? God is the King who is sitting on the throne. God is the King who is exalted above all things. The text says that He is high and lifted up. The train of His robe fills up the entire temple. The seraphim, the burning ones, the angels who are flying around His throne recognize that He is worthy. And so they cry out and worship to Him. What did they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. This is not just the temple being filled with His robe. This is the entire earth being filled with His glory. His voice was so powerful that whenever He spoke, the securest parts of the temple, the text says the foundations of the thresholds shook and the whole house was filled with smoke to hide the fullness of His glorious presence. No man can look upon God and live. So we see how God is described in this text. And we should walk away impressed with that. We should walk away in awe of that. But then ask the second question, how are we described in this text? Can you see yourself in the prophet Isaiah? Whenever he comes face to face with the God who is exalted, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, the one who is holy, 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 he cries out in verse 5, woe is me. If you look in chapters before Isaiah 6, Isaiah is placing woes upon different nations and different people groups for the sins that they involved themselves in. When he's confronted with God and who God is, he says the woe's on me. Why is the woe on him? He says, I'm lost. I'm undone. That word means I am ruined. Isaiah, why are you ruined? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. Can you see yourself in that? When we recognize who God is, we recognize that the woe is on us. Because we are undone. We have ruined our own lives. We have been lost in the path that we're supposed to walk down. Because we're unclean. Our sins have made us unclean, not just our lips, but we have unclean lives, unclean hands, unclean hearts, minds, souls. We see who God is in this text. We see who we are, and we're challenged 
to maintain a proper perspective of our relationships with Him. What is that perspective? God is so much higher. God is so much greater than I am that it's difficult to even put into words. It's important for us to remember that. Why? Because if we don't remember that, that's when we become prideful. When we don't remember that, that's when we become arrogant. When we don't have this proper perspective of who we are in comparison to God, that's when we start to look down our noses at other people. That's when we start to step on other people. That's when we exalt ourselves and we view ourselves as being righteous and nobody is as good as we are. When we put ourselves in comparison with God, we recognize there is no comparison. When we put ourselves in comparison with God, we have the perspective that we should have had all along. God is so much higher. God is so much greater than we can even imagine. We can't even put into words how much greater God is than we are. It's like the Bible class that happened one time. They were Kids were going over their Bible facts, much like the kids do here. And the teacher was reviewing, asking the question, what do we need to do to receive the forgiveness of our sins? One kid shot up his hand and blurted out, we have to sin. Which is true, right? If you're going to have the forgiveness of your sins, then you first have to sin. From the mouth of a child comes the key to becoming poor in spirit. We recognize how sinful we actually are. We recognize how broken we are. We are undone. We are ruined. We are lost because we are unclean. And when we stand in comparison with God, we can't help but fall on our hands and knees before Him. We can't help but recognize and live our lives by the fact that He is so much greater than we can even Imagine when our uncleanness is compared with the God whose glory fills the entire earth, whenever our ruined and broken lives stand in comparison with the God who is holy, 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 we recognize that there's just one God. And it's not you. It's not me. We have to have that proper perspective in order to be poor in spirit. And then finally, number three, if we're going to be poor in spirit, then we have to recognize our inadequacy. We have to recognize how inadequate we actually are. If you step into the last part of Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, Jesus is addressing the lukewarm church of Laodicea. One of the reasons that they were so lukewarm is because they viewed themselves as being self-sufficient. They thought that they could take care of themselves. They were content with where they were. Jesus points that out to them. In Revelation 3 and verse 17, He says, For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. The city of Laodicea was a very rich city. It was a rich city for three reasons. Banking, wool that they would spin into garments, and medicinal eye ointment, eye salve that would help people to see. Because of those three industries, riches and wealth and prosperity poured into the city of Laodicea. And when riches poured into the city of Laodicea, riches poured into the church in Laodicea. You see their attitude as a result. Oh, we're rich. We've prospered. We don't need anything. 
We are completely self-sufficient. We can take care of ourselves. We can live this life completely on our own. We don't need anything, and the implication there is that we don't even need Jesus. We can stand on our own two feet. Do we ever have that attitude in the United States of America? Oh, we've prospered. We're rich, and right now, I, I don't really need anything. My life and my family is advancing and we're prospering in more ways than one. I couldn't ask for anything else. I really don't need anything. So I really don't see a need for Jesus. I really don't see a need for the church. I can stand on my own two feet. I can take care of myself. Jesus points out the reality. When we see ourselves as not needing anything, Jesus presents to us that we need to recognize how inadequate we are. He says, you say you're rich and prospered and don't need anything, but what you don't realize is that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus tells the church of Laodicea, you think you don't need anything, and because you think you don't need anything, you actually stand in need of everything. You think that you're rich and you've prospered and you don't need anything. You think you're self-sufficient. You think you can stand on your own two feet but you don't realize that you're actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so he tells them what to do in verse 18. He says, here's your attitude. Here's the reality. Now here's my advice. Here's how you need to overcome that. I counsel you to buy, here's the key words, from me. He's not saying go out there and buy from everybody else. He says, you think you don't need anything, you need everything, so come to me. I'm, I'm advising you, come and buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Laodicea was rich. Why? They were rich because of banking. Jesus says it's time to come and buy gold from me so that you can truly be rich. They were rich because of the wool that they would spin into garments. Jesus says it's time to come and buy garments from Me so that you can cover up the shame of your nakedness and sin. They were rich, number three, because of the ointment that they would put on their eyes. He, time, he says it's time to buy that salve from Me so that you'll truly be able to see who you are and what this life is supposed to be all about. The church in Laodicea thought that they were prosperous. They thought they didn't need anything. Jesus presents to them the reality that they cannot truly be prosperous on their own. It's because of their inadequacy. They, they can't possibly do it. The church in Laodicea would never be prosperous until they recognize how inadequate they actually are. They become poor in spirit. And they invite Jesus to once again come into their hearts and fill their lives. The message isn't different for us today. The message is the same for us today. Maybe sometimes we're tempted and we get caught up in this idea that I'm rich. I have everything I could ever need. I don't need anything right now. I'm self-sufficient. I can stand on my own two feet. There is no such thing as a self-sufficient Christian. Those two words can't even go in the same sentence. By definition, a Christian is not one who relies on self and pushes through when things get difficult. By definition, a Christian is one who relies and depends on the Lord Jesus Christ for every breath that is breathed and every decision that is made. You cannot be a self 
self-sufficient Christian. I can't be a self-sufficient Christian because we are inadequate. We're never truly going to be prosperous in life until we align ourselves with what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3. We can't be prosperous on our own and we're only going to be prosperous when we recognize our inadequacies. We become poor in spirit and we submit our lives to Jesus. You want to experience true happiness? True meaning and fulfillment and blessing in life? What does Jesus say in Matthew 5 and verse 3? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And I think there's a lot more we could say about being poor in spirit, but I think these three ideas at least get the conversation going and the ball rolling. We understand who we are without God. We maintain a proper perspective of our relationships with Him. He is God and we're not. And we recognize how inadequate we actually are. I like the way that Augustus Toplady puts this in verse 3 of a hymn we oftentimes sing. Rock of ages cleft for me, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior. Or I die. That is what it truly means to be poor in spirit. And so it takes some reflection on our part. Are you living a life right now of spiritual poverty? Are you poor in spirit? Can you see who you are without God? Or if you were to subtract God from your life, you really wouldn't miss that much. If you subtracted God from your life, would it change the way that you live? Would it change the way that you think on a daily basis? Can you maintain, do you have that proper perspective of your relationship with Him? Or are we living in a way that's arrogant and prideful where we look down on other people and elevate ourselves? Are we recognizing our inadequacies? Or are we trying to stand on our own two feet? Are we trying to be self-sufficient? I can take care of myself and I don't really need anything. Are we poor in spirit? And I would be careful how quick you answer that question. Because those who are poor in spirit are going to take some time to consider it. Those who are poor in spirit are going to recognize I'm never really there. And I always have some room to grow. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What is the blessing though? If we want to experience true happiness and meaning and fulfillment in life, we live in this spiritual poverty, but where does that happiness actually come from? Well, look again at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3 as we close. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and here's the reason. Here's the blessing. Here's where the happiness comes from. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who does a kingdom usually belong to? Those who are rich, powerful, mighty, those who are strong? Jesus takes that and flips it on its head. Those who are poor in spirit, by Jesus' standards, are able to be a part of His kingdom, not just in this life, but also in the life that's coming. Only those who are poor in spirit are going to be willing to accept the reign and rule of King Jesus in their lives. The kingdom of heaven belongs to these kind of people. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who live in spiritual 
poverty? Are you poor in spirit? Does the kingdom of heaven belong to you? Are you living a life of spiritual poverty where King Jesus is reigning and ruling in every decision that you make? If the answer to that question is no, we can make that right this morning. If you're not a Christian, we'd love to help you with that. If you have faith in Jesus, but you've never taken that step to be buried in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, we would love to study with you. We'd love to talk with you. We'd even love to take that step today. Become poor in spirit and submit your life to Him. Maybe you are a Christian, and Matthew 5 and verse 3 is not who you are. Instead of being poor in spirit, you're rich in spirit, you're content in spirit, we'd love to encourage you. We'd love to pray for you. It's not a shameful thing. We are here to support you in any way that we can. Listen to what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize who they are without God. Blessed are those who put their relationships with Him in the proper perspective. Blessed are those who recognize their inadequacy. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Take hold of that this morning if you have the need as together we stand and sing the song that's been selected. Welcome once again to our assembly this morning. Appreciate your attendance with us today. I invite you back tonight at 6 p.m. for our evening services and again on Wednesday night at 7 p.m. We had 154 in attendance this morning for Bible class and 233 for morning worship. On our prayer list, uh,